0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the New Books in African Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Elisa Prosperetti. Today, I'll be talking to Professor Marissa J. Mormon about her book, Powerful Frequencies, Radio, State Power, and the Cold War in Angola, 1931 to 2002. Powerful Frequency was published in 2019 by Ohio University Press as part of the prestigious New African History series. Marissa is a professor of history, cinema, and media studies at Indiana University, Bloomington. Her work examines how cultural practices such as music, fashion, and film are productive of politics, not just derivative of them, which is a contention that leads her in fascinating directions. Her first book, Intonations, a social history of music and nation in Luanda, Angola from 1945 to recent times, explored the ways that Angolans imagine the nation through music. She is a co-editor at the Journal of African History. And in addition to her scholarly activities, she's also a blogger for the well-known site Africa is a Country. Marissa, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Elisa. It's great to be here. So tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you become a historian of Africa and a historian of Angola?
1: Okay, great. There's Well, I have two sort of origin stories. One's a little bit longer than the other one. And that has to do with how I came to be interested in African history. I grew up in a very white suburb of Chicago, um, but I grew up in a very anti-racist home. My aunt, who didn't live in the Chicago suburbs, but lived in Berkeley, was an anti-racism activist and um, also an international radio producer. And um, my parents were quite anti-racist in practice, though they weren't activists. So I grew up always sort of feeling a little bit perpendicular to the world that I lived in, um, confused by the racism of my peers, um, and shocked by it, honestly. And that got me interested in the history, you know, as I got older, by the time I think I was in high school, I got interested in the history of the United States and the African continent to try to understand the history of racism in the United States. So that was that's sort of the first piece that got me interested in the African continent. Then when I went to university in 1986 is when I started, the anti-apartheid movement had been, was on campuses in the U.S., was in full swing by then. And the year before actually had been the big year, 1985, of um, shanty towns on campuses and things like that. So that also really piqued my interest in the relationship between the United States and Southern Africa in particular. And I went to university in Washington, D.C., and I was involved in a progressive political group on campus. And nearly every weekend in D.C. in the second half of the 1980s, there were protests on the mall against U.S. involvement in Central America, U.S. involvement in Southern Africa. And that's really when Angola came onto uh, my mental radar, because I was sort of interested in where particularly on the African continent the U.S. was involved. I also happened to be studying literature. You know, I was studying Chaucer and things like that. Um, But at the same time, I was getting increasingly interested in this U.S. intervention in Southern Africa and in Angola in particular. And I happened to see a film about U.S. funding of Savimbi. And and so then I got a lot clearer about it. And I, I took a couple of African history classes. And I started to realize there was nearly nothing in my African history classes teaching me about the places in which the U.S. was intervening on the African continent. And so that sort of began to, to motivate and incentivize my interest in, in Angolan history in particular.
0: And so from there, how did you actually formulate um, this your first research project, your first book about music and the nation? Good question.
1: So in 1992, I went and spent a year in Zimbabwe. So um, not uh, not in Angola, but there were elections in Angola and I watched them very closely from Zimbabwe through the Zimbabwean um, and local press. And I got interested very particularly in what, you know, what I saw in the news- newspaper in Zimbabwe, which seemed to me to be this relationship between um, politics, in this case an election, and culture. So there was a, you know, I, I think I, I saw a photograph or something of a what looked to me like a A public big celebration um, that didn't just look political but cultural and there were musicians and things like that and that got me interested in this relationship between um, culture and politics in in Angola. At the same time while I was in Zimbabwe in 1992 I also happened to see a Cuban film about the Cuban support and Cuban troops in southern Angola fighting the Battle of Cuito, Cuanavale So sort of these, all of these things started to inform um, and continue to pique my interest about this kind of intersection of culture, politics, and international intervention in Angola. So I went to grad school. It took me another couple of years to get to grad school. But when I got there, um, my advisor looked at me and assumed that I would go work in Zimbabwe because I had been there before. But I said, no, I really, really, you know, I'd like to go to Angola. um, And here's what I want to work on. So that's how it started. It might not have been the most practical um, or sensible project. But in the end, it's the one that I I did manage to do. And, um, and I'm quite proud of.
0: So I guess I should have led this podcast episode by saying your book, Powerful Frequencies, which we're about to speak about, is probably the most appropriate for a new books network podcast in the sense that it's about radio. It's it's absolutely about this relationship, this intimacy that's produced from two voices that come in from the ether and yet you feel connected to. That's right. You you have on the cover of your book um an image which you've taken of an object that you have and you open the book describing the meaning of this image and and why you chose to display it so so prominently on the cover of the book. Can you describe it for us and, and tell us what it means for you? Yes, I can. So
1: it's a photograph of a wire and bead radio that's actually functional. I mean, it's a piece of artwork. If anybody is familiar with Southern Africa um, or has been to Southern Africa, you know that these sorts of objects are sold Widely, you know, you can buy a nap, something to hold your napkins in, or little flowers with a with a bead in the center of it, made from these wires. And I happened to see this one um, that was of a radio. And the man who made it, whose name is Jonah, was a Zimbabwean immigrant in South Africa. Said that you know he said, look, it actually functions, and he turned it on, and it worked. And I was like, oh my god, this this is incredible, right? It's this um, sort of you know you can see through it except for the beads. It's got a little radio plaque in it, which allows it to actually function. Um, And so I wanted it instantly because I was writing this book on radio. um, And I think the radio object in and of itself, whether it's a transistor or a big uh, living room radio, are really fascinating and beautiful things to think about. So um, I... I brought it back home with me. Actually, it sat for, I think, over a year in a friend of mine's house in Johannesburg Mm -hmm. um, before I could pick it up. But I eventually brought it back. I've I've used it in classrooms before. And I think it just brings together for me several aspects of the book. One, that um, radio is an object. It's often um, a uh, a piece of aesthetic reflection. So we see radios represented. And one of the things I'm interested in the book is how is radio represented um, in a, in a different aesthetic processes, whether that's on film, in paintings, in murals, um, or um, on magazine covers, drawings, and things like that. I think the way that we represent radio is quite fascinating um, and precisely because it brings together the material and the immaterial. And this little radio on the cover does that quite well as well. You can see that it. It is the object. It's this material thing that brings this immaterial thing, the voice um, coming through the ether, and makes it real again. That translates that from um, electricity in the air, essentially, right, into a voice that enters your ear. So it also, I think, did that quite beautifully. And then the fact that it was made by a Zimbabwean immigrant um, in South Africa spoke to me about the ways in which not just radio sound travels, but, but people also travel and they cross borders and that that's quite an important piece of this larger story that I'm trying to tell as well.
0: And it picks up on what you told us just previously about your, um, your experience going to Zimbabwe and night for the 1992 elections in Angola and listening in on them from there. Exactly. That's a very nice, uh, very nice closing of the circle. Um so yes radio is very material and very immaterial at the same time and i think one of the this project i it seems to me is very innovative but that innovation brings with it real challenges because how do you write the history of something immaterial and you write it so nicely when you say how do you read for sound in the archive Can you talk to us about the research process and the innovations that you had to find in order to work on rendering something immaterial in words? Absolutely.
1: That's that's such a good question and such a key problem. And it's one, I think, that all radio studies address. You know, how do we write about sound? How do we put sound into words? And also, in terms of the archives that are available, why is it so often that what we find our words we find transcriptions or we find programming schedules or things like that and we often don't find recorded sound. I think the assumption is that in fact if you're studying radio you're going to spend a lot of time listening to recorded sound and sound archives. but in fact you know if if radio stations kept sound archives of everything that they ran on the radio of everything they broadcast there would be there would be no space right um, even with digital, archiving, it would be very, very difficult, and you have to make decisions about what is important to keep and what is not, and those kinds of decisions very clearly shape an archive in certain ways. For me, I'm looking at uh, a colonial situation, and so an obvious place to go were the archives um, in Portugal, Um, but that was not easy because um, it's the secret police archives, um, I, I did, however, find an incredible wealth of material there. Um, but what I found were was paper, essentially, you know, transcriptions of broadcasts done by um, guerrilla radio stations, um, memos about people listening. Those were some of the most fascinating things in those archives. Were uh, moments in which these secret police would find people listening to the radio. Um, and things like that. I, I didn't find, um, sometimes there were maps, you know, they tried to figure out where the guerrilla movements were broadcasting from and where reception was taking place within the, the colonial territory of Angola. In Angola, which is the other place that I spent, uh, a long amount of time looking for material. I worked at the national radio station. It took me a long time to get permission to work there. And then working there was also quite challenging. Um, because of the sort of internal politics of the station and the internal politics of the MPLA, which is the ruling party. They also had um, not a huge amount of material, um, which was sort of surprising. They had some programming documents and things from uh, the 19, principally from the late 1970s and early 1980s before they began to use computers. uh, And that was incredibly useful. Um, in terms of a sound archive, they, in fact, had very little. I, I listened to, you know, hundreds of recordings and, um, and got copies of hundreds of recordings. But in fact, um, it, it, what was on those recordings was not typically what people talk to me about when they talk to me about the radio. So they kept things like any, basically any presidential speech given either by the first president, Augustino Neto, or the second president, um, Jose Eduardo dos Santos, who was still in power while I was doing this research. Um, they would have recordings of visitors, Fidel Castro, Kenneth Kaunda, people like that who were visiting from other places. But they didn't have a lot of what consisted, what what the daily radio fair was. They didn't have a lot of the programs that were broadcast on a daily basis. And those were really the heart of what people I spoke to about the radio talked to me about. So as with any, I think, historical research, you get this kind of unevenness between um, oral historical work, what people tell you in interviews and what you can find in documents and what I could find in terms of sound.
0: I can really relate to this experience that you're describing because I've worked a little bit on the history of of educational television Mm -hmm. and it was a project where almost all my sources were in print or in speaking with people. and I never saw you know the, the thing that I was actually purportedly writing about because it had all been destroyed. So it's it's really interesting to hear people talk about about how they they circumvent um, these challenges, right And it you know involves huge acts
1: of imagination
0: at the moment of writing, right? <laughs> Big leaps of faith. Exactly. So set the scene for us. How and when does radio arrive in Angola? Where do you begin your book?
1: So I start in the early 1930s when radio is first broadcast from Angola. And it's broadcast, in this case, not by the colonial state, but in fact by um, radio hobbyists or, or amateur radio folks who are um, almost entirely in the early days, uh, white Portuguese settlers who use radio to, to be in touch with one another. You know, Angola is 14 times the size of Portugal. It's basically the size of Arizona and Texas combined. It's a big place. And um, Portuguese settlers were spread out across the territory. And so they begin to use radio to communicate with one another and to link um, these these white settler communities in Angola. So that's really where the story starts. <clears throat> excuse me. Most of what I'm concerned with otherwise, <clears throat> excuse me, in the rest of the book is the relationship with the state and state power. But I think it's interesting that it has these very unstate-like origins in these in these settler groups and what they do is open up sort of membership-based radio clubs. So the early days of radio look quite different than um, than they do in some places, in other, in other African colonies and other places in the world. Other radio clubs are a fairly common thing. Um, we see that in most places the state takes over quite early on, but that's not the case in Angola. It doesn't really take over until the uh, the anti-colonial war starts in 1961. The state opens up its first broadcaster in the 1950s, but it doesn't really have a huge presence until the early 1960s. So I was interested in this the story of of radio hobbyists. And of course, we see a similar thing happening in Mozambique, which was also a Portuguese colony. But in many ways, it's quite different than what happens there, because in, in Mozambique, there's one radio club, the radio club of Lorenzo March, that becomes incredibly
0: important. So you elaborate this argument about these amateur radio clubs and their connection to whiteness. On the periphery <clears throat> of empire. To spool this out for us a little bit because it's quite an unusual place to to start um, a book about uh, that's going to take us through through the two thousands in Angola. Right. So there are a couple of things
1: um, that that brought me to to that sort of a beginning. One, this story about these these early radio clubs and how important they were, and the fact that they were in every, every province of the territory. Um, and secondly, that um, people began to tell me stories that many of the people who got their start in radio in Angola after the, um, the overthrow of the Salazar regime in 1974 in Portugal, uh, many of those people returned to Portugal and absolutely reinvigorated um, and reinvented um, communications and media in a democratic Portugal. And um, people founded, you know, uh, private television stations, private radio stations, um, and people remembered that those people had gotten their start in Angola and many of them identified as as white Angolans. So I was sort of interested in how what starts in Angola becomes, you know, is transformative also in Portugal after, um, after the democratic revolution there, on the one hand. And then in terms of thinking about How radio, how white settlers used radio to create a very distinct life for themselves, and how some of them became, uh, came to identify themselves, in fact, as Angolans. Some of them were born there and they um, were seen as second class Portuguese, and they didn't know Portugal, and and they used radio and aviation clubs and later car racing to, to forge a kind of white identity and to mark their lives. And their practices out from what was uh, a totalitarian, authoritarian, uh, some say fascist regime in Portugal under Salazar from from the 1930s until 1974. And so we see these white settlers um, who can do things in the African colonies, in this case, uh, Mozambique and Angola, that were absolutely impossible in Portugal. And Radia is one of the key places in which we see this happening. So I was interested then in thinking about how is. You know how does radio become a place or a practice through which they're able to understand themselves as white Angolans or as white Portuguese in in the in the African colonies.
0: And so the story, which begins in this um, kind of grassroots uh, project, uh, or not even project this this grassroots listening leisure experience in uh, a settler colony as you say, by the 1960s, by the early 1960s, becomes much more closely associated with the colonial state itself. And at the same time, it becomes associated with resistance to the colonial state, which causes a tremendous amount of nervousness and unease for the colonial state. So let's get into a little bit this connection that you elaborate about the the immateriality and the intimacy of radio and also the the state of nervousness that it produces. Sure.
1: So I guess I should say also that one of the things that led me to this particular project was that in working on music, people spoke to me, obviously, about the radio. Musicians described radio in Colonial Angola as their biggest promoter. And they also talked to me about listening to radio secretly. Um, And what they were listening to in that case were the broadcasts of the the anti-colonial guerrilla movements, Um, first and foremost, the MPLA, the Popular Movement for the Liberation of Angola, and also the National Front for the Liberation of of Angola, both of which broadcast from neighboring countries, um, uh, the Republic of the Congo and from uh, uh, what, what is today the Democratic Republic of the Congo. So both of these movements were based outside of the country. They were fighting a guerrilla war against the Portuguese, but they were also using radio as part of that war. And that um, was initially why, in fact, the Portuguese state began to broadcast. They began to get nervous in the late 1950s, um, both about the possibility of nationalist movements developing in Angola, Mozambique, Cape Verde, Guinea-Bissau, their other colonies. Um, but they also are worried about Portuguese dissidents. As I mentioned earlier, Portugal was controlled from the 1930s by Antonio Salazar and his Estado Novo, and that that was an authoritarian fascist regime. And so there was no political expression in Portugal either. And there were plenty of people persecuted there for their political engagement, right? And there was a big, a growing Portuguese left across this period. So the Portuguese state in Angola was also worried about Portuguese dissidents who had made their way to Angola or who who had been born and were based there. And in particular, there was one uh, man who was broadcasting from Brazzaville who had moved, you know, he'd left because of his, his political dissidents, he'd left Angola, which was Portuguese territory and was based in Brazzaville in the neighboring country and worked at the radio station there. And they begin to notice that he's he's broadcasting anti-Portuguese, what they consider anti-Portuguese propaganda. So they begin to pay attention to the airwaves in Southern Africa. And then by by 1961, when the anti-colonial struggle breaks out and we see two Angolan liberation movements form um, and are joined by a third in 1966, UNITA, they begin to get nervous about um, those organizations broadcasting because they know that they're operating in the countries along Angola's borders. Um, and they're and they're worried that they they will start broadcasting, which is in fact what they do. And so they listen in and they transcribe the broadcasts that they hear. And, and that is you know, the bulk of what I found, for example, in the secret police archives in Portugal, where these, you know, thousands of pages of transcriptions of radio broadcasts and also these interruptions of people listening to the radio or scenes of, of, you know, finding people listening to radios and listening to the stations of the MPLA and the FNLA. And this listening in made the, the secret police and eventually the Portuguese military, who then had their own listening stations, incredibly nervous. And that nervousness is what... Um, I, I could see that nervousness. I read that nervousness in the documents. Um, and so I got interested in the question of how is it that sound in particular becomes people find it so unnerving? What is it about sound that um, that makes them that is so disturbing? So they you could see it in these police, uh, maybe less than the transcripts, obviously less than the transcriptions themselves because they were trying to do word by word um, word by word transcription than in the kinds of reports that th- they would circulate or um, the suggestion that they would say, you know, we need to follow, we need to find people who are listening to these things, in which they sounded incredibly nervous. You know, they just sensed that people all around them were listening and they didn't know. And they would find um, people listening to radio stations and they couldn't figure out where the where the, where the the programs were being broadcast from. And so they begin to get very paranoid about who's listening in and they worry that white settlers are listening in and they worry that um, assimilados uh, who work in the civil service are listening in and that the very people that should be on the side of the Portuguese state are in fact listening to these anti-colonial enemy broadcasts. So I was just sort of fascinated by their, the sense that they had that these movements were, were big and powerful when in fact the truth was that Portugal was really winning the ground war and yet it was these radio stations um, or the broadcasts of the MPLA and the FNLA that made them feel like that wasn't the case, right? That they were, in fact, losing the war in some sense.
0: Could you describe for us some of the experiences that you that you discovered of how people engaged in this clandestine listening?
1: Sure. So people told me stories. Um, even back when I was doing the research on music, people would tell me stories about going to listen to Angola Combatente, which was the program, uh, the MPLA's program, broadcast primarily from Brazzaville, um, but also occasionally from Dar es Salaam, and after 1966 from Lusaka. People would tell me stories about tuning in to listen to that. Um, and people in general tended to listen alone. Occasionally, they would listen in small groups, but but more commonly, they would listen alone and then kind of pass the information on. And people would tell me stories about, you know, hiding under a bed, um, hiding under a, a bed with a pillow over their head, listening to a transistor, driving to a dark soccer field and listening in their car and things like that. So that's what got me initially interested in this. And these are, you know, those are common sorts of stories anywhere in the world that people are trying to listen secretly. But they, they um, I still find them fascinating. Um, And I think people, when when people recount them, they recount them with a sense of, you know, doing something sneaky, you know, of trying to get away with something or doing something dangerous, being scared of being caught and things like that. And then, of course, in the archives, I found all kinds of instances in which people were caught. And often people were caught listening in groups or trying to play the broadcast kind of semi-publicly. So they would capture it. it. It ran typically at 7 p.m. for about 15 minutes, and everybody also remembered that people were like it was, you know, 7 p.m. <laughs> on the dot. And um, so sometimes people would try to play it publicly. They they would use a transistor, and they um, they would know what the schedule was, and they would overlap it with another program. Um, in one case in in central Angola, these guys were listening with the volume fairly loud in a bar or a cantina, not tons of people there, but uh, a colonial administrator who's across the way goes to the bar to buy a pack of cigarettes. And he, he says, as soon as he walks in, he could hear the broadcast from outside. And as soon as he walks in, the barman turned down, you know, the volume on that and upped the the volume on a different station. Um, and later he goes back and he arrests both the men and the offending radio. So, you know, they're just these like, crazy stories of people trying to listen and and trying to also spread the word, right? So as I said, many people would listen alone, but then they would meet with their friends and pass along the information that they'd heard on the, on the radio.
0: And Angola has certain characteristics, which make a story about radio in Angola um, more in some ways, more apt than in other places you talk about you know the size of Angola, fourteen times the size of Portugal, uh, low population density outside of major cities, um, relatively low late, rates of literacy, and the way that this really was uh, something that had a very legitimate reason to make the colonial state nervous—the um, the, the power of radio—and and yet the colonial state, you say, you know, will pivot. And they'll pivot to taking radio as something that unnerves them to making it a tool of their counterinsurgency process. And you say it's uh, the Portuguese used radio as a techno-political solution to the problem of nationalist movements and anti-colonialism.
1: Right. So they, instead of trying to resolve the political problem, and of course they were fighting wars, not just in Angola, but in Mozambique um, and in Cape Verde and Guinea-Bissau, and, and in Cape Verde and Guinea-Bissau, they were clearly, they were absolutely losing the ground war there. But they were, so they're fighting this war on many fronts. Um, and they finally decide that these, these radio stations, and there were radio stations in, in those other uh, former Portuguese colonies as well, um, broadcast by the anti-colonial movements there. They decide, well, if they're broadcasting, then we need to broadcast counter-propaganda. Right. And of course much of the when you look at these transcripts much of what the anti-colonial broadcasters, the national liberation movement broadcasters are doing is also you know propaganda and counter propaganda um, and the, the contents of those those transcriptions um, so the the Portuguese state decides that or the Portuguese counterinsurgency project developed by the military and the secret police decides that they need to use radio as well but um, they do this strange thing, which is they don't um, they don't engage as much as they could have with the the local radio clubs, the Portuguese settlers who are broadcasting there, who have a huge amount of um, radio experience, right, and um, and who were so successful, as I said, that many of them go back and and transform communications in Portugal after the revolution there in 1974. So the colonial state does not use them, in fact, very effectively. Um, to to counter the guerrilla broadcasters. Instead, what they do is they, they build this massive radio station and they think that they can solve what's essentially a political problem, nationalist movements, anti-colonial movements, with a technical solution, which is building a massive radio station and, um, and broadcasting not just counter-propaganda, but just uh, you know, kind of regular state programming as well. And, and one of the things that the the Angolan radio club broadcasters tell these state broadcasters is like, you sound terrible. You sound like a state. Everybody knows who, exactly who you are. Nobody's going to listen to this broadcasting. It's terrible. Um, so I found that really fascinating, right? They, they developed this kind of massive modernist um, technical political project. To solve the political problem. And in some ways, it it fails. But the results are profound. I mean, they produced, they literally built a new broadcaster, which was the largest broadcaster anywhere in territorial Portugal. And I'll remind you that Portugal saw Angola um, as an overseas province and Mozambique, Um, much like the French saw Algeria. They saw it literally as an extension of, of European territory on the continent. And so the broadcaster that they built in Angola was the, the largest, broad, the largest, most powerful and most modern, technologically you know, up-to-date and modern broadcaster um, anywhere in, in what they called territorial Portugal at the time that it was built in the mid-1960s. And yet it was largely ineffective um, in, in, in the counter-propaganda war. But they did produce this enormous building Um, designed by an Angolan architect, a white Angolan architect who had studied first in Portugal and then with Le Corbusier in Paris um, and built this kind of brutalist edifice in in the middle of Luanda. So they they had a real kind of um, bold presence, but in terms of, of broadcasting, it was less successful.
0: Very much the kind of seeing like a state project of this this high modernism that we associate with James Scott, but for for radio, which maybe wouldn't have been so um, wouldn't have been so intuitive uh, in another context absolutely so one of the arguments that you make about the contributions of kind of getting at the, a a political story, but, but from a, a very different angle than the one that we're used to is that it can, um, open up a different, different points of inflection in, in the kind of standard chronology and your exploration of radio leads you to, to point to the attempted, attempted coup in 1977 as a much more signal event than the, uh, Proclamation of Independence in 1975. So, can you uh, tease that out for us? How how does approaching Angolan history from from this perspective, the one that you've chosen in this book, open up a different chronology?
1: Uh, sure. So, I I think of myself as a as a cultural historian, and as a very fairly interdisciplinary one at that. But I think I do make some pretty standard historical moves, which is, you know, reor- reorienting things like chronology. And I'm certainly not the only person doing this in the case of Angola. Um, the, the 20, what's known as the Vinti de Mayo or the, the attempted coup on the 27th of May in 1977 has received um, much more attention by scholars and journalists of late since, I would say, the early 2000s. And many people see it as really key to understanding what happens in in post colonial Angola, and it just happens that the radio <laughs> was a really key spot in this in at that moment for a couple of reasons. So, I mean, we know that coups tend to take place at radios, um, but really the kind of politics that were happening at that moment um, had a huge impact on the shape of life at the radio station during the transition um, from the late colonial period to to independence. And so um, much of what happens, much of the politics of that period play out um, not only at the radio station, but certainly at the radio station um, itself. So in that sense, it's it's symptomatic of what's going on in other places. And so um, I was particularly interested in that, one, because we have this sort of cliched idea that coups always happen at radio stations and they do because who leaders need to take over communications, right? They need to be able to communicate um, over a wide, over a vast area and quickly what it is that they are doing um, in order to establish, um, to make their claim and to try to establish authority. So, and, and in, in a sense, Angola is no different in that way. But what is interesting is that many of the political debates that were happening in Angola just after independence um, that involved the coup plotters, Take place, also take place at the radio. So there are a number of small groups that form after independence or right around independence. Um, I think this is a this is fairly particular to the former Portuguese colonies. So there's a, a revolution in Portugal in April of 1974. That leads to, it's a military coup in Portugal. Um, that leads to a transition to decolonization in the former Portuguese colonies. And that is, uh, takes place over about a year and a half in most instances. So in Angola, um, there's a transition period between April of 1974 and November of 1975 when in the date for independence is set. In Mozambique, um, it happens a little bit earlier and independence is set for um, the end of June, 1975. But we see you know, these kind of transition periods in both places. In Angola, where there were three anti-colonial movements that turned into nationalist movements, um, this was a particularly fraught and complicated period in time in which there was an attempt to share power um, and the Portuguese military was supposed to help secure that process. That whole system broke down. The MPLA eventually is able to control Luanda with the help of Cuban troops um, and to fight off invasions from... Um, Zaire backed by the U.S. and invasions from South Africa coming from the, from the southern border. So it's very, very complicated. And you can see that the, there's, you know, there's a tremendous amount of tension. Um, and what we see then is that they declare independence on November 11th, 1975. Shortly thereafter, FNL, the FNLA and UNITA declare a separate um, independence based in Wambo in central Angola. Um, that eventually breaks down. Um, so the MPLA becomes the de facto ruler. They declare independence in the name of the Angolan people, um, and already they were basically in control of the radio station. But they begin to consolidate their power after this period. Um, but there's there's contention not only between the three nationalist movements, but within any of the movements, any of the given movements themselves. Um, and there are very different ideas within the MPLA about what's important in thinking about Angola's independence and Angola's future. And like many places on the African continent and other places in the world, you know, this was a, a movement that was led largely by young people. Right. And there were a wide series of debates going on. Um, some start in schools, some start, start in neighborhood committees, some start in these small political organizations that start to pop up to um, to usher in independence and to bring, you know, before the nationalist movements actually returned to Angola because they were all outside fighting. And, um, we begin to see very distinct, um, distinct ideas, right. On the one hand, you know, people who had, um, stayed behind people who had fought in the, in the bush for the different, um, and, and the MPLA had several different fronts so we also see differences among people in the MPLA based on their experiences of where ha- where they had been fighting the war had gone on for a long time it was about you know 13 14 years of fighting um, so people had very distinct experiences based on where they were located um, whether or not and, and whether or not they were guerrilla soldiers and this produces um, there were also people you know reading they're reading a lot of leftist material people, are connected to the left in Portugal and in other places. Um, and we get you know, very serious debates of what the future of Angola should look like and what are the proper models, even within the left, about what, um, what a sort of leftist socialist Angola might do. So um, I'm not doing a great job of explaining it. It's incredibly <laughs> complex. And without getting into the, the weeds of it, it's hard to, to understand. But in, in, in effect, what we see are in Luanda, diverse sets of opinion, very vibrant culture of debate going on. Um, and that's how many people understood it. Um, but of course, for a party that's, that's declared independence um, and that's in possession of a state in which a civil war has just broken out because the two other nationalist parties declare a different kind of independence. Um, they are backed by the United States and South Africa Um, Angola continues across this period from 1975 on to be invaded um, by the South African military, often backed by the United States, by, um, by with us material. Um, So this creates a, uh, a context in which it's not possible to really have the kind of open political debates that people needed to be able to have about independence, right? Everything becomes much more sensitive. Everything becomes much more, um, difficult and delicate because they're being invaded. You know, they, they become part essentially of the, of the cold war. They become a hot spot in the cold war. Um, so these debates are going on. The, um, the people that are associated with what later, later become known as the coup plotters who initially were just people who had a different, different political position or different left position. Um, they have, they, t- they, um, are in charge of some of the information organs of the new state. Um, they have a radio program, they have a newspaper, um, they have debating societies, things like that. And, um, pretty early on they get kicked off the radio. I mean, initially they have a program that's a sort of popular based program. Eventually, um, by 1976, they're kicked off the radio station um, by a kind of presidential fiat. There's never any written decree, but the president just says, I don't like this program. Um, You will no no longer be broadcasting. Um, And then seven, eight months later, an attempted coup takes place. And some of these guys go back to the radio station um, and they play their opening song that morning on the radio. And people say, oh, something's up. This show hasn't been on for a really long time, Um, and that's part of the way, um, as well as taking over of some military barracks that the that the attempted coup happens. Um, So that was a long way (laughs) of of trying to explain that these these different fractions, which are essentially different ideas, as I was saying about what should what Angola's future should look like, play out, and they play out in part at the radio station, um, such that the um, the opening call sign for what had been this radio program that had broadcast for maybe a year after independence um, is, in essence, one of the things that announces the queue on the morning of the 27th of May, 1977. Um, And that has then a huge impact on how the the MPLA state sees the role of the radio. Um, I guess I probably should have said at the beginning that, in fact, you know, one would think, or I thought, as a researcher studying What seemed like a very successful um, guerrilla broadcaster, the MPLA's Angola Combatente, I thought they would have been more more self-conscious about making the radio after independence a key part of nationalization and of the new national project. And in fact, they were not. Um, They didn't take the people who had been the broadcasters of Angola Combatente and put them in at the radio station. They put put in sort of political appointees, some of whom had had none or very little experience with the media in general. Um, And it's only after this attempted coup in 1977 that they begin to see how important the radio is and that, in fact, they need to put real radio professionals in power there.
0: It's amazing sometimes to just step back and see how it seems whoever is in power, how flat footed uh, they they can be with their understanding of media, Um, thinking that, you know, it's just something that's always quite surprising. But so, so you're, you know, talking about this after the 77 attempted coup, there's, there's a consolidation of radio as an organ of, of, of media uh, for the MPLA party controlling Rwanda. And so there's a question of, of, of propaganda, but, but you talk about it in a much more nuanced way, not just propaganda, but about elaborating true lies and how these true lies are playing out not only in the radio that's controlled by the MPLA, but also the broadcasters um, of the other liberation movements. So what does this this concept of true lie, Why? how did you get there and what work does it do for you here?
1: So I, I use true lie to think about uh, propaganda because I think propaganda is such a flat term. Like we think we know what we're saying when we say propaganda and we're quick to describe things as propaganda. And we forget very often that the people involved in broadcasting such things, um, believe what they're saying, you know? They might know that it's not exactly the truth, but they have good reasons or they have reasons for doing um, what they're doing and for saying what they're saying. So I was interested in that. And I also have thought that it's important to, this is sort of a larger preoccupation of mine, to take seriously the revolutionary movements on the African continent, which are often dismissed in the wake of post-colonial failures of governance, right? So I wanted to be able to say, you know, while today lots of young people dismiss the MPLA's project, um, why don't we take it seriously? We kind of need to take it on its own terms. What was at stake for them? What was at stake for these these, in many cases young people who had taken over the state? Um, what were their political commitments? Why did they have them? What were they trying to do? So it's that's part of a a larger project, um, and that's in fact what I was trying to do here. And also, I was trying to what do what scholars describe sort of as disaggregating the state. So I wanted to see, you know, what is who are the people that make up the state, and if you are in one of those positions, you know, people on the opposite side might just consider you a hack. Um, but how do you see what you're doing, and how do you try to be a professional in very narrow political circumstances where there's a state. Um, that's taken over by the party, it's a one party state um, and you don't have a lot of wiggle room um, and yet they're dependent on you because they're dependent on your expertise. And that was absolutely the case with the radio. Um, how do you, how do you create space for yourself to, to be a professional um, in tight political circumstances and also do the work that you're supposed to do? Um, so I was interested in that question and true lies were a way for me to, to try to get at that, that people had had real commitments um, and um, were trying to be professionals, and yet they also understood themselves as doing the work of a particular um, politi- certain, certain political commitments, right? Making those real for the state. So that's what I was trying to do there. And that carries over then also into um, a discussion in a later chapter of the book about UNITA, which uh, was one of the national liberation movements that then became uh, essentially the the rebel party, the rebel antagonist in Angola's civil war. Um, I also learned by speaking to people who had been involved with UNITA's, what was then essentially another guerrilla radio station broadcasting against the MPLA state, That and they lived also under very strict authoritarian uh, political rule, um, but they also kind of sought refuge in their sense of being radio professionals. You know, one woman told me, uh, Bella Malachia said, you know, I am not interested in politics. Um, I saw myself as a radio professional and I tried to focus on that, even though sometimes I had to broadcast essentially political propaganda. So I was interested then in, you know, how is it that something we think of as propaganda, something that states do um, or, or aspirational states in the case of UNITA. How do do the people that make up those movements that make up those states actually get this work done? And why do they do it? What drives them?
0: And so by the time that we get to the the peace agreement in in 2002, we've kind of, what you've told us in this book is a story of all of these, these rivaling broadcast projects, in a sense. And and then we get to you know, the two thousands and there's a liberalization of the media and yet you seem to say that this this opening up of the media space beyond you know a few um, a, a few more more narrow um, revolutions or counter revolutions um it in fact this liberalization reduces the scope of um of a political discourse, which is counterintuitive. We would assume that the liberalization of the media comes with the liberalization of civic discourse. And you say that's not exactly the case.
1: Right. In Angola, that certainly was not the case. And I witnessed much of that firsthand. I mean, when I was doing research for my dissertation um, in the late 1990s and early 2000s, Uh, I watched, I literally lived in Angola during the end of the Civil War. I watched this happen. And then on subsequent uh, visits and research trips in the early 2000s, you know, I accompanied this process as it was going on. And um, it was quite ironic to see that while there was this opening up to the, to the market, um, and there were hopes of kind of liberal reforms. And there was, um, you know, there were new radio stations, private radio stations, as early as 1992, around the first elections that, um, that did not succeed in creating peace. Um, these new radio stations opened up, and yet they were not really opening up the, the civil discourse, right? They were not opening up the media, in fact, what we saw were that n- there were more newspapers, um, but newspapers were easier control and that r- easier to control by the state, um, and that radio stations only opened up much, much later. I would say after two thousand and six, probably, um, and this had to do with the politics of the MPLA state and the and the very long rule of Angola's second president, José Eduardo dos Santos who went about consolidating power um, even after the end of the Civil War and not just consolidating power for the MPLA. In fact, they opened up power. Unita, um, and the, and the FNLA and other political parties um, could be formed, came to exist, and could be elected and hold seats in parliament. And yet the MPLA really con- continued to control um, so much of the state apparatus, so much of the political discourse, and so much of the media. And indeed, um, Dos Santos consolidated uh, state power in the office of increasingly in the office of the president, um, particularly with the change in the Constitution in 2010. So, and that was one of the things as I witnessed all that going on, that also was part of what motivated my interest in thinking about the state in this project. Um, My first book's really not so much about the state, um, but I was interested in thinking much more about the state as I witnessed. Um, Angolans becoming increasingly concerned um, and some people uh, trying to protest, some people jailed, things like that. Um, And the the kind of consolidation of state power in the office of the president after 2002. Um, So I I was really interested in thinking about how is, what's the state's relationship then with the media more generally? Lots of people assume that just because there were alternative media Um, particularly newspapers, that there would be alternative radio stations. But the state um, has only very belatedly opened up more airspace. Um, And there's been a huge growth in the number of um, new private radio stations, I would say, since uh, probably 2012. You know, there's been a proliferation of stations. But until that time, most of those early stations that opened up as early as 1992 were all Um, opened by people related to the MPLA and people very close to the MPLA. There was much, in this sense, the kind of nervousness that the colonial state that we see in in the colonial state in responding to um, the National Liberation Movement's radios is reproduced after independence in the state's own nervousness about other people being able to broadcast their ideas.
0: So we've come to the end of this this, uh, almost century of the history that you tell, a very ambitious project, right? 70 years you cover in this book. And we're wondering what is the next step in your scholarly evolution? What's the next project that flows from the work that you did here?
1: So I have started work on a new project called, um, tentatively entitled Imperialism on trial. And this emerges directly out of this book. Uh, out of chapter five, where I was really interested in this idea of propaganda and true lies, um, and one of the commitments of the new Angolan state after independence, which was supporting um, liberation movements in the region and very particularly the liberation movement in Namibia. So, in studying um, and researching work on that, what later became a chapter, um, and on the, the MPLA's commitment to supporting SWAPO and the ANC, I ran, a, I was trying to sort of reconstruct. What was the MPLA's propaganda strategy? Um, and it wasn't, these are things that are actually quite difficult to research in Angola because the MPLA is quite closed in some ways, and particularly in the last years of Dos Santos' rule, it was very, very hard to get access to things. Um, so I, had a very, I was trying to reconstruct how it was that the MPLA began to develop their, their propaganda strategy. They'd had this great radio, this great guerrilla radio, then they'd had this kind of troubled start to the new na- with the new national radio station, and I was trying to figure out what were the events or what were the things that happened that that had been important in constructing a kind of propaganda strategy. And I ran ac- across a couple of things. One, the capture of South African troops in Angola um, in 1975, the end of 1975, um, and that was not something that was that was very. Um, it was not like the way to use that as propaganda was not on the radio, right? It's not, it wasn't a story. It was a story, of course, that was broadcast on the radio. We've captured South African troops and they're, they're wearing South African mil- military fatigues. They claimed that they were, you know, English mercenaries, but no, they're not. But what was most important about that capture were the photographs, right? So we have a newly independent African state um with, black political leaders capturing young white South African troops in their country. And so it was the kind of visual image, right. Of having captured these um, these white South African soldiers that actually did more work on the level of propaganda. Sound was less important. Um, there was another event that I ran across that was the capture of um, British and American mercenaries. Um, and again, this was, you know, these were, news items, um, and stories that were broadcast, but they really took on, um, a separate life in the propaganda of, of the MPLA. And I became absolutely fascinated by these British American mercenaries in some ways feel like it brings me back to the kinds of things that I was doing as a college student protesting on the mall in, in DC, which was protesting us involvement in other places in the world. Um, because here were, um, 13 mercenaries most of them British, some of them American, uh, purportedly funded in part by the CIA. They had entered Angolan territory with the support um, of Mobutu through Zaire, um, working for the FNLA, which was one of the other liberation movements. Um, and they decided to put on a massive trial, huge. So if you, you know, if you Google this, you can actually find Getty images of some of these mercenaries put on trial in Angola in 1976. So I just became fascinated with this idea of, um, you know, how in a moment of civil war, um, of tremendous internal strife within the MPLA, um, which, you know, then breaks out in this coup in 1977, how in the world do they... Manage to commit themselves to putting on basically an international trial, right? Of these mercenaries, and um, they assemble an international commission. They establish a revolutionary tribunal. They invite foreign journalists. The whole thing's translated simultaneously in four different languages, et cetera, et cetera. So it, it really becomes a huge media event. So I was really, um, I'm interested. I'm interested in that. And then uh, another angle on it is, in fact. Um, the key person and people in this international commission of 42 judges and and lawyers from all over the world, the man that heads that up is an African-American lawyer. Um, So I'm quite interested too in how it is that kind of African-American leftist lawyers get involved in this case as well. And it's part of what I described earlier as my interest in taking um, the projects of independence seriously and on their own terms. So That's what I'm looking at. Um, It's also hugely, they were hugely dependent on um, Cuban advice and Cuban expertise. So I'm quite interested in the, in the Cuban role in this big international trial as well, that otherwise has not really not gotten any attention.
0: I think Marissa, your kind of indomitable (laughs) um, passion for, for history and for finding stories that haven't been told. And then, and then going for going for it, you know, with with all of this, all of these difficulties, all of these setbacks is really something that I'm gonna take away from this interview because it's so inspiring to hear you talk about, you know, just just follow your instinct and go for it because the challenges that you face in this research and other research you've done is really, really not to be downplayed. Um, but thank you so much for, for taking the time to discuss your wonderful book, Powerful Frequencies, with us. Thank you.